Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Arden O'Connor, and I'm joined by Diana Clark. Hello. And today we have a fabulous guest, Dr. Lee Hausner. Welcome, Lee. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Arden. Lee's background is incredible. She is a recognized clinical psychologist. She's a business consultant and a seminar leader. And amongst her very many accolades and professional accomplishments, she's written a book. And I have to tell you, Lee, because I struggle with this in articles and even naming these podcast episodes, I absolutely love the content of the book, but I also love the title, Children of Paradise, Successful Parenting for Prosperous Families. I think it's so apt for so many of the families that we work with, and I think it's such an engaging title that gets people to want to open that book jacket right away. I hope so. That's the purpose. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, I'm going to start out with a very easy question, which is just, you know, you're 30 plus years into your career and you've had, you've been a renowned speaker for groups like YPO and uh, Tiger 21 and WPO. You've worked with banks, you've worked with high net worth families. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this particular field? You know, the journey has been really fascinating, Arden. And a lot of it is, is in a way, it's accidental, but maybe it's not accidental. You know, I graduated college with it. First of all, I went, my father's a physician, so I went to, to college initially because I was going to be a doctor. But my father was very wise. He said, but I don't want you to major in science. Major in like psychology and take the science courses because I want you to have a, a more well-rounded background. I don't want you to have to spend hours and hours in a lab. So I was a psych major when I decided that I was not going to go to med, you know, I did not want to pursue medicine. When you graduate and you're a psych major, you, <laughs> there's not much you do just with that degree. So I decided to go to graduate school and in a way accidentally got guided into school psychology, the school, school, school psychology program, because there was an advisor that was very charismatic. And I, I really realized that school psychology was going to be the kind of career that I could also combine with having a family. I was kind of thinking ahead about so Anyway, I, I end up as a school psychologist. And probably the most significant thing, we were living in California, is I got hired by Beverly Hills, the Beverly Hills Unified School District, to be the senior psychologist, the school psychologist. And I had been a psychologist in other districts. And along the way, I had always been very interested in teaching parenting. My first training was actually in a very poor district in Oakland. And I taught parenting there. I felt like, like parents really needed to understand what was important about parenting early on because my, I had always said that if you do it right early on, you're going to save your kids hundreds of thousands of dollars in therapy later on. So it's important to know that I was always very interested in kind of teaching parenting. And I was a real fan of Dreikers, Children the Challenge, and it was that kind of model that I used to teach parenting. Now I come into Beverly Hills with the 
thought initially, this is going to be easy. I had worked in difficult districts. I had worked in impoverished districts. And now I'm coming into this district where allegedly, and I'm putting that in quotes, these students should have the best of everything, right? The best of food and the best of travel, the best of experiences. I never dealt with such complicated cases. And I realized that no parent thinks, how can I... They don't go to bed at night saying, how am I going to make life difficult for my kids? They try their best, but that doesn't mean I'm giving them my good housekeeping seal of approval. But basically, they didn't have a clue. The idea that I had established very early on was the family's a business, and it needs the same kind of strategic planning that a business does if we want to be successful. And that's how I taught parenting. Kind of, here are some key things that you need to learn. And I started teaching parenting in Beverly Hills. And in, when I was in that environment, couples came to me, you know, very powerful, obviously very wealthy families. And I suddenly became also very much aware of what wealth and power and prestige was doing, how how it even made it a little bit more complicated. Beverly Hills is very interesting because it's really an amazing laboratory, if you, so to speak, about wealth. And by that I mean in Beverly Hills you have a lot of first-generation wealth creators with the personality characteristics of strong, charismatic, sometimes domineering, parents who have been very successful by themselves and create a lot of wealth. Then you had a class of, of individuals who were what I call the trust funarians, living on trust funds, maybe second or third generation trust fund individuals. Then, of course, we have the industry. <laughs> the industry is not just the motion picture stars. It's the directors and the producers and the casting agents and the lighting people and the music. Everybody's a prima donna and the whole sports complex. They make up the industry. So you have high-profile individuals. And then I was there when the Iranians left their country and came to the United States, and many of them came to Beverly Hills. So now we had a, a, a population that had been extremely wealthy in their own countries coming to Beverly Hills, initially with the idea that they were only going to be here for a couple of years and go back, but some of them, half of them were able to get their wealth out, half of them were not. So you had individuals who had a lot of money but now didn't have a lot of money. So we had all these kinds of different money power issues in that district. And that's when I wrote my Children Children of Paradise. I realized that these parents needed a strategic guide for what to do and how to not let the power and the wealth get in the way of really raising productive, well-balanced, contributive children. From that platform, other things evolved. I mean, my speaking, uh, my becoming involved in with YPO and now looking internationally at wealth issues, you know, one thing just sort of led to another. That's been sort of the evolution of, of my career. I could never have planned it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Lee, I have a question. Do you think Beverly Hills is a particular kind of Petri dish? I mean, you might take yes. some of the same occupations and some of those dynamics and put them in the Midwest. Would no. it look different? It looks, no, you, you do not put the, the I'm from the Midwest. And I promise you 
the, the dynamics are completely different. You may get a little bit of that in New York, but you don't get, first of all, you don't have what I call the big industry, the influence of that whole entertainment industry and the type of individual that is in that industry, which is really, it's an industry of prima donnas. It is an industry of prima donnas. And nowhere, no, no other location has the number of prima donnas that Beverly Hills has. New York has a swath of, but, you know, but not, not to the extent that I think that the, the concentration of the Beverly Hills school system has. And it's interesting that you I ask me about totally the I totally understand that. Let me tell you a funny thing about the Midwest. Whenever I have a client that has called me from the Midwest, I always feel it's important to tell them that I am originally from Indiana, and you can sort of see them saying, oh, phew, I'm not getting this crazy (laughs) Beverly Hills psychologist. I'm really getting this Midwestern individual with two feet on the ground and some very solid Midwestern values. And I am the first to tell you that I think having been raised in the Midwest really gave me a tremendous amount of security and strength to deal in that district. That makes complete sense because you would have to be able to rely on internal strength instead of on external um, presence because everybody else around you was relying on the external, right? Exactly, exactly. And I just knew, I knew right from wrong. <laughs> um, you know, I, and I actually, I grew up in a very successful family. My father was a very prominent physician, and so it's not like I came from an impoverished family in the Midwest. I mean, we were, but we, it was very solid in terms of what was important and values, and even how you dealt with money, the whole issue of how you dealt with money and how to be, you know, good stewards of money. I mean, my sister and I always squirreled away our allowances. We always had extra money. <laughs> we just were very, we were very careful in terms of, of how we managed money. That was just kind of one of the values of the Midwest. You, you didn't, you weren't flashy. You did not try to take out people's eyes. That was, you know, one of the expressions that my parents used. You know, you don't take out people's eyes, which meant you don't do things to make people feel uncomfortable or less than. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not exactly the value that we have in Beverly Hills. Not everybody, but certainly people are not afraid to be very flashy and over the top. No, I I would imagine, yes. So tell me, families often need a whole, let's say, coterie of advisors, attorneys and wealth management consultants and therapists. What is your specific niche that you bring to this wealthy families team? It's a very important niche, and I'm really glad that you're asking that question because I am in the business of the family. So I treat the family as a business just like you treat a real business with strategic planning, with meetings, with accountability. And if you want to have a healthy, successful family, you can't just say, you know what, I'm going to have these children and I'm not going to really think much about what I'm doing strategically and keep my fingers crossed and 20 years later I'm just going to hope it all came out all right. Because you would never do that with a business. So I don't know why you would think you could do that as as a, a family. So I think that strategically you have to look at your board of advisors, like a board of directors, a company has a board of directors, a successful company or a 
or at least an advisory group. And the mistake that families make is not having this advisory group. And the advisory group has to have both what I say quals and quants. I talk a lot about that. Your quants are the individuals who deal with the quantitative needs of a family, your banker, your investment person, your insurance person, um, the management consultant for the business. They, they deal with the quantitative aspects of what's going on in your life. Equally important, and I, and I of course, am going to say more important, is what's going on with the quality, the qualitative relationships. And that's why on the team, you need somebody who's got the kind of background that I have, who's a qual. The qual works with the quants. And hopefully, the ideal situation is if the entire team has a chance to be together and collectively decide what is best for the family. Uh, One of the most satisfying situations that I worked in was with a big family that had had a private trust company. There were a lot of individuals involved. Once a year, she took all her advisors away for a two-day retreat, and together we developed a strategy for the next year for this family. I mean, that's a very powerful thing to do. But I think that families need to have on their advisory team somebody who is also looking at what is going on with the personality dynamics, because that's what's critical. That's going to be what is critical in terms of the long-term success of this family. You know, the latest book that I wrote was called The Legacy Family. It's a guide for creating a successful multi-generation family. And this is a family that's going to be successful four to five generations past the wealth creator. So if we want to do that, we really have to look long-range strategically. And you certainly have to have that advisory team that is dealing not just with the dollars or the business, but more importantly are dealing with the personal growth of each individual, how they're self-actualizing, what their relationships are going to be like, you know, values, morals, ethics, those kinds of things which deal with the qualitative nature of a family. That is great. I would imagine, Lee, that you have find yourself in the position of having to say difficult things sometimes. Is that true? Yes. I... I, I Difficult, I will say honest. What I really try to do is give as honest feedback to a family in a very constructive way. You know, part of what I think is really important and probably one of the more important things that I do in working with the family is work a lot on communication. And I think it's so important because I think you can say anything to anybody if you know how to package it well. If you know the the right communication package, you can say things and get your point across in a way that doesn't cause anger and resentment and defensiveness. Because if that occurs, it's impossible for the individual to take in what really is trying to be communicated. And I think it's difficult because we learn to speak, but what we really don't learn always is effective communication. And each individual family has their own communication system, things that they can talk about and they can't. And so really what happens is a husband and a wife get married, and each of them are coming with different kind of communication backgrounds. (laughs) And this causes challenge within the family, unless everyone can get on the same page 
of how we're going to communicate. And now imagine as the family gets larger, now we're going from first generation to second generation, and we have a lot more moving parts. We have a lot more individuals who came from different backgrounds and ways that they were able to communicate or not communicate effectively. So it's very important in working with particularly a multi-generation family that everybody learn how to say what they need to say effectively. When you don't say what is bothering you, what happens and what I talk a lot about is I talk about psychological cancer cells. When people ask me, what do I do? I say, I come into families and I look for potential psychological cancer cells and I try to cut them out before they metastasize. And what is a psychological cancer cell? You do something that bothers me. Okay, I don't tell you that because I don't, I don't want to upset you. I don't want you to get angry. So, but you continue to do it. It continues to bother me. So what is going to happen one day? Pooh. I'm going to blow up, right? And now Boom. we've really completely disrupted the relationship. Humpty Dumpty is broken, and it's hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together. Because once you've had the explosion, then there's this, the other person is never going to fully trust. Now, if we could have solved the problem when you first start to annoy me or bother me, when it's a little problem, we don't get to the point where we have, you know, total disruption in relationships and people not speaking. And so the, the, the idea of how we are going to communicate, and particularly conflict, negative situations, because conflict is not bad. Unresolved conflict is what causes a psychological cancer cells. Not that we have differences of opinion. I mean, sometimes conflict leads to better overall solutions, but we have to know how to deal with that. We can't be as terrified of conflict as we seem to be. The no, other day I was arguing with my partner and my son <laughs> came out and tried to interrupt and I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I want you two to stop. I said, why are you trying to spoil a good fight? And he, he laughed and he went back to his room. <laughs> you know, sometimes we need conflict. But you know what happens in a lot of families? Conflict has led to physical violence. Mm -hmm. And if you grew up in a family where there was a lot of physical violence, let me tell you, you're going to be very conflict avoidant. You learn to just keep your mouth shut to be safe. And now if you get married into that family, you bring that same, I don't want to, you know, I don't want conflict, that fear of conflict disrupts your ability to communicate freely and effectively when problems occur. That makes total sense. So, you know, Lee, I, I've, there's so many questions that I have, but I'm going to try and narrow it down to one. You know, I would love to understand, you've been in the field a long time. Do you see the field changing at all? Like, are you seeing more people who are doing work with wealthy families, banks or yes. individual professionals? And how do you see that changing? I absolutely do. And I'll, I'll tell you where I really, and, and I'm very pleased kind of with this shift. I think because there's so much conversation now about the fact that it's not just about the dollars. The money in the bank does not matter when you're standing outside the hospital, when your child has overdosed and you're wondering whether that child's going to live or die. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the, in the bank, right? I mean, I think that people are becoming much more aware of it's not about the dollars. So once they became aware of that, they, have, they started to sort of say, well, what can we do so we don't get to the point where we may have a lot of money, but we don't have a family? And there's been so much I've seen in the last 20 years 
in terms of articles, things being written, more people with kind of my background coming into this particular field. And what I see now are there are more families that are really basically healthy families that say, we would like some guidance because we don't want to become dysfunctional. I think when I first came into this field, the kinds of families that I was working with had tremendously problematic situations occurring. Now you're getting some families that are just being more thoughtful and more strategic. They said, you know, we've, we've created a wealth and we've created this kind of enterprise and it's going to be passed down. How do we do it effectively? How do we do it in a way that doesn't cause problems among our kids? How do we teach our kids how to collaborate? They're just thinking in a much more thoughtful, strategic manner than they have in the past. I definitely see that trend. Also, interestingly enough, among the quants, so to speak, of the power of the qualitative nature. Now, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened. There was a period of time where my practice, I, was, I had a consulting practice with this amazing attorney, Doug Freeman, who's still a very close friend of mine, and it was an absolutely wonderful partnership. And we got purchased by a bank. And when we first got purchased by the bank, one of the major... uh, In the investment side of the bank, one of the major players who brought in the big clients couldn't imagine why a psychologist, (laughs) what what worth I had as a psychologist. And we were trying to create this mission vision of this new organization, and it was sort of back and forth. uh, I didn't want it all about the dollars, and he kind of can't understand where I'm coming from. I would say it was a very kind of difficult relationship until he got a big client who he was trying to woo and somebody and the client had family and there were some family concerns so he just sort of routinely said you know what this they got some family things you want to come into this meeting and I came into this meeting and he saw what happened in the interaction and the family didn't want to hear anything about the investment performance all they wanted to hear about was what we could do to help the family and they became a big client and from that time on I will tell you, he did not talk to a major client without me. I mean, he really kind of was a real shift in his thinking about the fact that, whoa, the client was not so interested in, you know, another 2 or 3 or 4% return on the dollars. There was enough money. What they were concerned about was what was going on with the family. Makes total sense. I guess one question I have is, you know, when... When you think about sort of the various cases that you've been working with, um, and it sounds like you get some, like you said, high-functioning families trying to do things better, trying to set themselves up for success. You know, what do you do if it's a family maybe with less emotional wherewithal? They're in a less, you know, they're in a position, whether it's they're dealing with an issue that our firm deals with, like addiction or mental health, or whether they just have very tense family dynamics. Does that... Approach, do you change your approach in dealing with them? And you know, How do you think about being a professional and engaging a family system that's in the midst of something that's you know, more challenging emotionally? You want to know something? I don't think my approach, I really honestly don't think I, I change the, the approach. Obviously, look, when there's addiction, particularly when we're talking about addiction or we're talking about a severe mental health issue, a schizophrenia, a bipolar disorder, there's a definite course of action that has to be taken. I mean, we have to get somebody into treatment, okay? We have to look at some intervention of, of medication. 
So that's a very specific course of action that needs to be taken. And I am not the addiction specialist. When I come into a family and there is a problem of of the substance abuse, then I'm going to call you. I'm going to call the person who's the expert in that particular silo. Now, I I recognize the silo. I identify the silo. But I don't pretend to be the expert because within that particular silo of how we're dealing with addiction, there's lots of changes that occur all the time in that field. And you have to really be on top of your game in that field. Where are the best treatment places? They change. You can have a wonderful treatment facility and a couple key people leave, and it's not such a wonderful treatment facility. So even when I was in Beverly Hills and we were dealing with issues of substance abuse among the students, there was an individual that I used all the time who I would refer to because he was the one who was on top of all the good facilities, all the good rehabilitation programs, where we needed to be sending this individual for that treatment. I am dealing with the entire family system. Okay? So I am looking at the bigger picture of the entire system. not And the individual who needs specialized help. It's my job as a consultant of the family to see that that individual gets the kind of resources. In other words, I become almost a quarterback in that situation and I throw the ball to you if it's, you know, if it's addiction or if it's, you know, we have to hospitalize because of some sort of a mental breakdown. You know, I have people where we would be doing that. Uh, Does that answer the question? I think it does. I think it does. Basically, it sounds like, you know, in the same spirit of being holistic in your approach with the family and not just being about the dollars, that you have the same kind of approach when it comes to making sure they're getting the best possible help when it comes to some of these more serious issues, that you're not trying to be all things to all people. And, you know, I think that's a huge, huge mistake. Nobody can be all things to all people. Not one profession can be that. Not your attorney, not your accountant, not... No. It needs to have a team, and that team needs to be able to work together. I think one of the great things that that I have found that I have valued so is having relationships with individuals like yourself that I trust, and I know that they're kind of part of my larger team. I know where to throw the ball, and I think that anybody that works in this field needs to put their team around them. I think that anybody that thinks that they can handle all these variety of complex issues that come with a complicated family by themselves are doing the family a tremendous disservice. This is a team game here. And, you know, even in terms of gender, I will tell you that I I have always, interestingly enough, my partners have always been male. I think there's something very positive about having a male-female team because just as I think there needs to be diversity in terms of background, I think that it's very helpful to have diversity in terms of, of the gender differences. And I think if you were talking to my partner, who was the attorney, Doug, used to notice this a lot and comment on it. If we were in a difficult family meeting and we were talking, say, with a, a, a difficult male patriarch, and in the meeting you could see that this patriarch was probably getting upset, Doug would say to other people, I've watched Lee go over and put her hand on this person's shoulder, and this person relaxes. If I went over and tried to do that, male to male, he said, I wouldn't do it. It would not be comfortable. I don't think it would be comfortable for him. 
So that idea that not only are we talking about differences in background, but even the gender differences of having that perspective, I think is valuable for families. That makes sense. Lee, as we end our show, I would love to know, and our listeners would likely want to know, what is one thing you would like everybody to consider as you're getting ready to leave? I would just say, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't think that you really have to have all the answers. And if you don't, it is some sort of failure on your part. I think that reach out. There is tremendous help that's available. You are not expected to be able to manage it all by yourself. Any more than I said, any one profession can give you the kind of overall advice when you are talking about the complexities of the kinds of families that we are dealing with. Very well said. Lee, thanks so much for joining us today. We want to thank our listeners for listening to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast, and we hope you have a great day. It's been a pleasure. I I hope this will be very, very helpful to your listeners. Absolutely. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.